please stand if you're able for reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Exodus 20, 17. Please read the verse with me. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Julie. He called you Julie. Thank you, Jill. Um, good morning. My name is Brad, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. I want to add my welcome uh, to all of you, to welcomes you've already received, but I want to uh, give a special uh, welcome this morning. It is the first time uh, for one attender named Zoe Zitzman. Uh, the applause uh, for those online and those uh, who don't know the story, Zoe's been with us for many, many weeks, but Zoe, uh, Zoe's adoption was finalized on Friday, so she is now a Zitzman by rule of law. So welcome. Almost every week, or almost every one of the weeks that I preach, I uh, spend some of, the, some of my preparation time uh, during that week reading and praying an old uh, Puritan prayer. Uh, throughout the week and particularly on the morning that I'm going to uh, present a sermon. It's part of a collection of Puritan writings in a little book called The Valley of Vision. And the prayer is called A Minister's Preaching. All of the names in this book are very uh, stark and to the point like that. Uh, it begins with these words, My Master and God. I'm desired to preach today, but I go weak and needy to my task, and yet I long that people might be edified with divine truth. And then for about a page, just a short page, this prayer works through some of the most significant hopes that I have, and certainly many preachers have for a sermon that they've been called to preach. I pray um, that, uh, that God's word would leave sinners inexcusable and neglecting his mercy, and I pray uh, that he would give comfort to the sorrows of God's people. And every week, as, I, as I'm preparing to, to preach and I read through this prayer, I pray this line written in there as well. It says, Lord, keep me, conscience, keep me conscious all the while of my defects and let me not gloat in pride over my performance. In case you hadn't thought of it before, Preachers struggle with pride and with, uh, with self-pity. Preaching, at least I have found, is a difficult thing because it's uh, something that I want to do well and yet I also believe is something that really should be about God's word and not about me. And so how do you, how do you aspire to do this well without, um, as the as the prayer says, gloating in pride over your performance or um, retreating in self-pity afterwards. I say that uh, to set up an interaction I had a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago, we were uh, here in the tent and um, an old friend was visiting Grace Sacramento uh, for the first time or for the first time in a long time. 
And uh, he asked before the service, he came up to me and he asked before the service, are you preaching? And of course now, the full disclosure, uh, the preacher is examining that question in those moments, right? Did he say, are you preaching? Did he say, are you preaching? He said, are you preaching? And I said, yes, I am preaching. Dan Daniel and I, uh, it's not not like clockwork, but we usually alternate one week and the other, and so this is my week, next week will be his. And he said, well, that's okay. You're as good as he is. <laughs> and now, I'm pretty sure it was a really wise response designed to be a compliment for two preachers, but in my secret heart, I, uh, unbeknownst to him, God had exposed, right, the, the secret idolatry of my heart, right? I, I, I'm going to say, oh, shucks, but I want him to say, are you preaching, right? <sighs> you might sometimes hear that the Old Testament um, is concerned about the letter of the law. Some people will say uh, the Old Testament is about what you do and say and don't do and say, do not murder, do not steal. And then Jesus came along in the New Testament and pointed toward God's heart behind the law. If you read the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, many of the parts of that teaching from Jesus sound like this. You've heard it was said, you shall not murder, but whoever murders and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable of judgment. So there's uh, an impression sometimes that the Old Testament is black and white and that Jesus is about the heart and about motivation. But right here, the 10th word in the Ten Commandments, we have an Old Testament instruction, an Old Testament law that is completely concerned with the heart of a person and not with their actions. You shall not covet. God is prohibiting something that is invisible, right? Idol making, Sabbath breaking, dishonoring authority, murder, theft, adultery, slander. These are all things that in one way or another, the person sitting next to me in my life can see happening. And, uh, but not covetousness. It's a condition of the heart. And so... Just like Jesus in the New Testament is concerned that we understand not the letter of the law, but the heart of the law, here too we see that God is concerned in the Old Testament, not just for the actions we take or the words that we use, but for the thoughts that we think, the motivations of our hearts. And so this morning uh, from Exodus chapter 20, I want to just think about three things, coveting, contentment, and Christ. Coveting, contentment in Christ. Coveting or covetousness, what is it and where does it come from? According to Webster's Dictionary, covetousness is the greedy, acquisitive grasping, a strong desire especially for material possessions. It implies an inordinate desire often for someone else's stuff, someone else's possessions. We need to be clear because uh, the Bible does not condemn desire. 
It does not condemn desire carte blanche. It's not like Buddhism that suggests that uh, we will find freedom if we can just put to death all of our desire and become desireless uh, entities. The Bible doesn't forbid us to desire to enjoy the blessing of God's good creation and to, uh, and to enjoy um, the fruitfulness that good human labor uh, produces from the creation that God has given us. Philippians chapter 4 says, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. Desire these things. So covetousness implies uh, not just desire, but desiring stuff that does not belong to you. And And the commandment suggests that this applies not just to stuff, but to relationships, to, to circumstances, to other people's gifts, other people's talents, other people's opportunities. It says, uh, not to covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything else in your neighbor's house. It's talking about envy, jealousy, discontent, in the insatiability. And it's embedded, the idea of covetousness is embedded in the very entrance of sin into creation. When we read in Genesis chapter 3, we see that uh, Eve has become convinced, she's tempted to believe that God is keeping something from her, something that he has that she wants. It says, but the servant, serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die if you eat the fruit. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Envy, jealousy, discontent insatiability you can see it underneath uh, some of the some of the the, the famous uh, old testament stories of sin cain's murder of abel jealous of his sacrifice jacob's stolen inheritance jealous of his older brother's birthright you can see it uh, in david's adultery with bathsheba um, envious and jealous for another man's wife jen wilkins says The thing is, is that no one ever set out to sin against God or a neighbor without first desiring something that should have been out of bounds. No one ever sought to take from God or a neighbor without first desiring to diminish that person. Covetousness is a poison in our hearts that spills out into our words and into our actions and into our lives and into our worship. How does it happen? Well, uh, sin and therefore covetousness is the default setting of the human heart since that moment of the fall. And so in some sense, it happens because we're sinners, because it's our hard wiring to desire uh, what is not our own if we have not yet found forgiveness and redemption. Um, But... It not only happens because we're hardwired to do it, but because we particularly in this cultural moment and in this cultural place are constantly being encouraged towards it and pushed towards it, uh, towards envy and jealousy and discontent and insatiability by 
a, a trinity of influences that surround us every day. I mean, we live in a we're we're con, we live amongst consumerism, we live amongst comparison, we live amongst confusion. Let me explain. Clearly, a covetous heart has been poisonous and destructive since the dawn of civilization, but never before have people lived in a society that actually deifies and worships dissatisfaction like ours does. In 1996, this is a long time ago, (laughs) for some of us, 1996, a guy named Rodney Clapp wrote a devastating article in Christianity Today entitled, Why the Devil Takes Visa. (laughs) In it, he examines the history of Christianity and modern consumerism. He says, just a couple of thoughts from Rodney Clapp. He says, we are profoundly schooled and thousands of times daily reinforced. In 1996, the average American was exposed to more than 3,000 sales messages a day. He says, we are profoundly schooled and thousands of times daily reinforced in an insatiability. Insatiability itself is as old as humanity, or at least the fall of humanity. But what is unique about modern modern consumerism is the idealization and constant encouragement of insatiability, the deification of dissatisfaction. In another place, he says, Consumerism is an ethos, a character-cultivating way of life that seduces and insinuates and acclimates us towards itself. This, he says, too often is a consumption that mitigates against Christian virtues, virtues of patience, contentedness, self-denial, generosity. Can we simultaneously seek and to some degree realize both instant gratification and patience? What about instant gratification and self-control? Is joy cultivated by an economic system that deifies dissatisfaction? Some thoughts from Ronnie Clapp. Secondly, there's never been, it has never been so easy Ever before in the history of the world, it's never been so easy to look at what your neighbor has and to desire it as your own. His or her house, right? His or her spouse, their oxen, their donkey, they're posting it on Instagram. (laughs) They're putting it on Snapchat. And they're using algorithms to get you to follow them and to like them, and to like what they have, and to like what they're doing. And companies are paying people big bucks to influence people to want the stuff that they're posting on Instagram and using on social media. Never before has there been so much pressure to aspire to, to what others like, literally like, in your life. Never before so much pressure to curate your own life online to project affluence and happiness and fulfillment. And my friends, as the age-old saying goes, comparison is the thief of joy. Coveting what someone else has is a combination of both wrong expectation and judgment that is born out of comparison. When we compare it, when, we, when we're constantly comparing, we're developing either the wrong expectation for ourselves, right? If they have it, then I deserve it too. 
or judgment, uh, looking and literally, I mean, we're being asked by a program to judge other people and, di- and discern whether they are lower than ourselves and therefore we feel better about ourselves or they are better than ourselves and we feel lower. We develop uh, a b- well, we, we, we proceed to discontentment and self-pity one way or the other. Jen Wilkin again says, the gap between our expectation and our reality is where discontentment and covetousness thrive. And social media is constantly increasing the gap between our expectations and our reality. Finally, we are deeply confused as a culture about what brings fulfillment. We're offered a smorgasbord of solutions to our loneliness and to our discouragement that all really boil down to the belief that if I could just have that, if I could just have my neighbors this, if I could have their relationships, if I had their career, if I had their sex life, if I had their circumstances, then I would find the fulfillment that I clearly perceive that they have because of the image that they have curated for me to see. We have, as the old French Proverbs says, an absurdly exaggerated idea of the happiness of others. And an almost willful ignorance that none of the stuff that we already had has given us fulfillment, and so it must be that we need more stuff or different stuff or other people's stuff. We are deeply confused about what brings fulfillment and prone to believe that more of the same solution that we have been trying that has never worked before will somehow work this time. Echoing what the prophet Isaiah says in the Old Testament when he says, my people, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, which can hold no water. The scripture says, you shall not covet, but we are surrounded by and embedded in a system that says, want, strive, you need this, never be satisfied, you can get more, you need more, you can have whatever they have. Is there any hope for us? Every week that Daniel has preached, Uh, during this sermon series. Uh, So every week that Daniel preaches, and he's an excellent preacher, by the way. I'm as good as him. (laughs) Every week that Daniel has preached in this sermon series, uh, he's been saying that for every thou shalt not, in the Ten Commandments, there's a thou shalt. And the tenth word points very clearly towards the instruction, be content. Thou shalt be content content. Paul says to Timothy, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13 that godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we can be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and snare and into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin. Both of these passages make 
seem to make the same point as the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet, except in the positive, be content. The Greek word that these New Testament passages use for contentment means genuine soul satisfaction. The suggestion is that as we learn to trust God more and more for our provision, believing that he will supply everything that we need, uh, we will experience less resentment, less gnawing regret, and less anxiety that we currently exist in our relationship to others, or at least the way that we see other people. And that's where coveting does its most damage. It feels, especially when you start a sermon about an invisible sin in somebody's heart, that sounds like that sounds like an individual thing, a thing that I got to figure out for me and you got to figure out for you. And while that's true, coveting does the most damage in communities, the way that we treat each other, those around us who are being treated with stinginess and suspicion and distance. So the less content we are with our station and with our possession and with our circumstances uh, and our relationships, the less inclined we are, we're going to be to be generous towards other people or show hospitality and share what we have and find joy in the good things that are happening for other people. And so our pursuit of contentment has as much to do with our care for other people as it has to do with our pursuit of peace and joy and God's pleasure in our own hearts and lives. But for many of us, contentment has been a losing battle for a long time. Our covetousness in our own lives has resulted in everything from being deep in debt to uh, battling eating disorders to uh, chain, uh, uh, chains of broken relationships, always looking for something better than I have. How do we find contentment in the midst of our own sin and in the midst of consumerism and comparison and confusion that's around us? Well, I think the scripture says a couple of things. First, it says that it is possible. However, it's not for sale on Amazon. And it may not be delivered as fast as you would like. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, I have learned in whatever, in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul says two things about contentment. First, he says that contentment uh, is learned. It's a, it's a learned thing. He says, I have learned in whatever situation. I have learned the secret, secret of facing plenty. So in the same way as whether we realize it or not, we have learned to listen to messages all day, every day, 3,000 of them, and then respond about what we want and what we need to get and what we want to do. We, we don't realize that we have been taught an interaction in which we are told something and then we respond. So the truth is we have plenty of opportunities to learn contentment, approximately 3,000 of them a day. Opportunities to assess the messages we're hearing and speak a different message full of truth and God's word to our own hearts. Asking ourselves, 
am I getting confused here about what is good? Is this thing that I'm being told is good consistent with God's word? Is this thing a good desire or is it an empty cistern? Have I tried this before? The scripture says every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation. Is this consistent with what God's word says? Is what I'm doing or considering doing going to bear good fruit in my life? Will this result in patience and service and generosity? Am I operating out of pursuit of Christ or am I operating out of comparison and dissatisfaction? If I feel like I'm making a decision out of desperation or fear, maybe I need to remember that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Have I stopped to say, Lord, I'm so grateful that I am more valuable to you than I can understand. Help me to trust that, trust you that you clothe the lilies and feed the birds, and I am so much more valuable than they to you. Cultivating gratitude, I think, is probably the most obvious antidote to covetousness, for after all, wanting more is an obvious sign of not being thankful for what you have. In the book, The Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning, Brennan Manning tells the story of a guy named Antonio Salieri, he was the court composer to the Holy Roman Emperor, and he was hardworking, he was devout in his love for God, and he was wildly jealous of the outrageously gifted Mozart, who was his contemporary. Mozart, who was neither a hard worker nor devout, and yet scribbled out magnificent music whenever he found time between, quote, wine, women, and song, and he didn't sing that much, says Manning. <laughs> Nevertheless, in real life, at the end of each piece of music that Salieri himself wrote, he made the intentional decision to fight back the urge to compare it with Mozart and to judge it limited or uninspired against him by intentionally adding this uh, note at the end of each piece of music. Grazie, Signor. Thank you, Lord. Grazie, Signor. Manning adds these words to Salieri's prayer. He says, Grazie, Signor, for other people who have greater gifts than mine. Wow. Author Anita Mathias points out what covenant what covetousness what coveting blinds us to see it she says it blinds us to the fact that it is a blessing that i take for granted that in my social circles in my professional circles in my online circles i continually encounter those who are more intellectually gifted creatively gifted spiritually gifted and better read than me. There's always someone to learn from. There's always more good gifts from God to discover and to aspire to and to celebrate. And we're blinded to that uh, when we cannot celebrate good gifts that God has given to others. Paul says contentment can be learned. He also says the second thing. He says, 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Christian contentment, along with Christian growth, which we sometimes call sanctification, along with our salvation, our understanding that we're loved and saved and forgiven by God, all of those things uh, come to believers through the power of Christ. In Psalm 121, the psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. When we have come to the end of ourselves and we lift up our eyes for help to him, and in his grace he gives us everything we need, that's the story of uh, finding Jesus and putting your faith in him for forgiveness and salvation. It's also the story of how Christians grow because he's the giver of every good gift. And that might be the evilest thing about covetousness. And, and that is that it pulls our eyes down off of where our help comes from and onto the things that are just immediately around us, onto stuff and onto relationships and onto circumstances that we wished were ours. Covetousness is profoundly self-involved and it makes it impossible to keep the law that Jesus instructed. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. But thank God because Jesus did not set his eyes on the things that were around him, on the desires of the world and of those who he encountered, but for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He died in our place, keeping his eyes, uh, as it were, to the hills from where his help would come from. And uh, when he, in fact, had succumbed to death, God raised him again to life, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If he has given us Jesus how will he not also give us all things?